Hey everybody, Craig here. Welcome to episode 30 of Think Rollins the podcast. Uh, so a couple things uh, before we start, as usual. Uh, first of all, I want to mention that uh, ClosureCon has been announced for 2013. That'll be November 14th through 16th. And this year, for the first time, we're having it in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., which is not too far from where I'm at, so I'm pretty excited that that's going to be in my backyard. Uh, the, you can check out the website at closure-conj.org. We'll have uh, announcements about uh, uh, how you can uh, submit proposals and everything coming there soon. So, And you'll hear more about that here. Um, as far as where you can find relevancers in the month of May 2013, um, if you happen to be down under, you'll be able to catch Stuart Sierra, who's spending quite a few weeks down there. Um, he'll be in Sydney at Yao Night on the 9th. Uh, he will be in Sydney doing the Intro to Closure training the 10th and 11th. In Brisbane doing the tra- our course, the Intro to Closure course, the 14th and 15th. Um, at Lambda Jam, Yao's Lambda Jam, the 16th and 17th. In Melbourne, doing the course, the 20th and the 21st, and at Yao Night again there on the 21st. So uh, quite a bit of Stuart Sierra if you happen to be down under. Um, For those of you in the States, you can catch up with Gabriel Horner at the Closure Meetup in Cambridge, Massachusetts on the 9th at 6.30. Um, And if you're in Portland, you'll find Michael Parenteau at Refresh PDX on the 15th. Um, So yeah, quite a few opportunities as usual to catch relevancers out and about in the wild. Um, today's episode uh, is uh, was a fun one for me. One of the things about working at Relevance that's kind of a bummer is that uh, we often know about people using Clojure, and we can't talk about it because of client confidentiality reasons. Um, so when Dave Ray suggested that we talk to somebody at Prismatic about um, Clojure and their experience and our experience and have a conversation, I thought it was a really great idea because Prismatic is a very visible proponent of Clojure, and they've built a really cool... Um, service using it. You can check it out at getprismatic.com. I use it myself. I really, really like it. Um, it's really great for finding out interesting things that you want to read. Um, just just really cool. We talk about it in the episode. So uh, so it's really good to have Jason on the show. Uh, really thank him for coming on and uh, thank you for listening. Today is Friday, February 8th, 2013. Welcome to Think Relevance, the podcast. It's my very great pleasure today to have Jason Wolf on the show. Welcome, Jason, to the show. Uh, hi, Craig. Thanks for, uh, for inviting me on. Absolutely. In fact, we have to give credit where credit is due. It was actually, uh, I'm not looking at it, but I believe it was Ben Moss from uh, Pivotal Labs who suggested that we have you on. Um, I shot out a tweet that said, hey, you know, we're open to interesting ideas for the show. Anybody have any, anything you'd like to hear? And um, he said, "Well, you guys should have somebody from Prismatic on." And I said, "Well, yes, we should." And you know, talk to you guys. And they said, "Oh, you guys, you guys ought to talk to Jason." So uh, that is how we got here. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to have a conversation with us. 
Yeah, my pleasure. So, um, I mean, I think, so, so one thing I would say is that this is actually a first for the show in that you are the first guest we've ever had on who has uh, no business relationship with uh, relevance, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, but I still thought it was a really good idea. Um, you're not a customer, you don't work here, whatever. And we'll get to where you do work in a second. Um, to have you on because uh, you work at Prismatic. Mm-hmm. And uh, that makes it an obvious link because um, you guys are uh, one of um, the, the most visible, I think, um, production users of Clojure. I mean, there's a fair number of people using them, but you've been really vocal about your use and, I, and you've made a, a pretty big splash with your service. Um, which, I, by the way, I use and totally love to the point where I actually have to make a point of closing the window that has Prismatic in it so that I can get work done. Uh, <laughs> so um, so maybe we'll start there, which is, you know, you, you can tell anyone that is listening that might not know um, uh, about a little bit about Prismatic. Uh, okay, great. Um, yeah, so uh, Prismatic basically learns about your interests and finds awesome content for you, ranging from... Uh, things like uh, traditional news stories to videos to open source repos, blog posts, uh, and so on. And so we do this by continuously scouring the web and social networks like Twitter and Facebook for new interesting content. And then when you uh, visit your home feed on our website or the iPhone app, we try to find the most interesting recent stories to show you based on you know, what they're about, who wrote them, and who shared them. Um, and uh, you know, to do this, we uh, of course have to know what you like, and we use a variety of signals, uh, including what interests you've explicitly added on the site, uh, what you've interacted with before, and uh, what we can learn from external social networks if you choose to attach them, like your, your Facebook and, and Twitter friends, articles you previously shared out. Um, so we, we try to combine all this together and, uh, and really do a great job of, of uh, basically finding cool stuff to read. And I, I, I really genuinely, uh, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that I have to close the window because it's just like, uh, so it reminds me a, <clears throat> a little bit of, um, if anybody uses Google Reader, they have the recommended items list, mm-hmm. but, but that was always sort of hit and miss for me. Whereas when I go to Prismatic, like 90 plus percent of the items that scroll by are stuff that I would totally read. I don't drill into every one, but it's like, yep, I can see why they'd recommend that. That's definitely interesting. And one of the things that I really like about it, um, and, and I, and I want to, I want to just talk about this for a little bit, but one of the things that I really like about um, Prismatic is that you guys do a really good job of ordering them so that it's not, you know, 17 articles about Haskell followed by three articles about running followed by whatever, but they're intermixed and in a really compelling way, so it's there's enough grouping that it's not too much. I, I, I don't know if that's intentional or a side effect. I suspect it has to be intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, definitely something we we've worked on a, a lot, especially in the the home feed when people have uh, have you know a hundred or two hundred interests. It's a it's a pretty interesting and challenging problem to figure out how to sort of combine those all together into um, you know a sort of semi-coherent feed that's you know fun to read yeah yeah uh, and uh, people should definitely go check it out uh the url is uh it's getprismatic.com right yep yeah it should definitely check it out um so now as far as your role at prismatic you are a developer there is that correct um yeah so i guess uh i've been uh sort of a lot of things uh, but yeah primarily uh software engineering 
Um, so I started <clears throat> as like uh, the first employee, more or less, 18 months ago. Um, and our whole engineering team uh, has basically consisted of, of AI PhDs besides uh, Brad, who's uh, was doing engineering, but has sort of shifted into more of a, you know, CEO uh, stuff uh, over this time. So, um, you know, we basically all, uh, our whole engineering team has, has this AI background, but, you know, we've also built the product during this time. So uh, we've all worked on uh, sort of everything ranging from, you know, low-level infrastructure and, and systems to uh, libraries and, um, you know, production services to writing the iPhone app. So we all took a, you know, four-month break to from back-end stuff to write the iPhone app, uh, you know, doing analytics and, and then, of course, the, the actual uh, int- uh, machine learning problems of, of picking stories and extracting text from web pages and uh, assigning topics and, and uh, all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, and of course, as I said, you guys are a very visible user of and proponent of um, Clojure and Clojure Script. So, and, and that's, of course, why we had you on, because, you know, at Relevance, we are right, heavily invested in Clojure, obviously. Um, so I thought we'd have a few things to talk about. I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, what you guys' experience, and you've, and you've spoken on this before, but if you could talk to our audience about what your experience with Clojure and Clojure Script has been, how they work together, the, you know, any challenges you found, just kind of what that's been like. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, so I can't say as much about Clojure Script. Um, we uh, uh, actually, uh, you know, started hiring front-end developers, so uh, who have been been doing more of that. So I've only seen a little bit of it, but uh, definitely on the the Clojure side, I um, can uh, talk at length. So um, I've been actually using Clojure exclusively for. Um, four or five, five years, I think maybe, maybe four, I don't know. It's been, uh, it's been uh, a good chunk of time and, you know, I think it's a really awesome language. It's my favorite language. And I was really stoked when, uh, you know, I was already excited about Prismatic. And when I found out that Ari and Brad were already using it, um, you know, that was, was just great. Um, so, uh, specific things that, that I think are, are really great about it, um, uh, probably, you know, uh, I guess the first thing we, it really allows us to express, express our core logic really concisely and clearly. So, you know, we've been able to sort of take that and accomplish what I think is, a, you know, a, a lot of good stuff with a very small team. So it's, you know, we basically had on average three engineers for the past 18 months and, and we've, um, you know, been able to sort of build up this, this whole service and, um, uh, in addition to the the clients and um, and all that, um, I love the the persistent data structures. I think are great, and and the data literals and the core for ni- manipulating these data structures. I think when you really when you really get this, there's uh, uh, it can just uh, really simplify and lead to to really nice, beautiful code. Um, then of course there's you know performance and the ecosystem of the JVM uh, being able to drop to to Java enclosure when the, the going gets really tough and, and you need, you know, sort of every last inch of performance. Right. And you guys are, I mean, I, I don't know if you're public about the, the, the number of users or transaction rates or anything, but you're, you've built, I mean, this system is handling a, a very high load. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't say, give any precise numbers, but yeah, we're, I mean, we're on the, the input side, we're, you know, basically, uh, 
uh, mining as much of the the web and social networks as as we can manage, which is a, a I think a, a pretty significant portion. And um, yeah, on the user side, we're handling a a, a, a pretty good load, and we're actually um, I think doing things in a pretty interesting way. Where when you come to the site and you know you load your home feed, we actually uh, sort of treat it like a search problem, where we actually generate the feed in real time. And you are the query, uh, more or less. Mm. Um, whereas I think uh, my guess would be a lot of uh, other people in the space are, are running some sort of like a batch Hadoop job, uh, you know, once every six hours or something to generate new stories for people. But we're actually, you know, picking the very best stories that we have to show you next at any given time. So that that's a performance challenge then, right? Because you you have a, a much smaller time window in which to achieve the same results. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we we uh, aim to to generate uh, the feeds in you know a couple hundred milliseconds, and that's definitely been you know we put a ton of work into uh, optimizing the system to be able to hit that goal. So I want to drill down on this a little bit because one of the things that came up when I threw the idea out on the on Twitter of you know what should we talk about on the show if people had suggestions was I thought a really good suggestion from Dave Ray. He said. Um, you know, you guys, meaning relevance, but not just us, um, mm -hmm. have done production closure. Whereas I think it's true that a lot of people who are interested in the language are doing what we all do when we get interested in language. Oh, I'll go and make a little toy or whatever, which is different than, you know, solving someone else's problem. I mean, you know, it's it's your problem in the sense as a startup, but but it's a someone else's problem in the sense of that you, you can't just do whatever you want. You have to satisfy the users. So... So there's a bunch of interesting things there, I think. Um, one of which is, you know, this question of performance. And um, I, I wonder, what were the things that you found that you had to to do? Like, what was the what was the journey towards performance with a closure system like for you? Well, let's see. I um, kind of have to think back a bit here because I actually used closure first in grad school and and. Uh, cared a fair bit about performance there. So actually learned a lot and uh, um, just sort of uh, playing around with uh, with things there. Um, it's definitely, I mean, so certainly like learning to use a profiler is probably the, the biggest thing that helps because it's often really hard to predict where the performance bottlenecks are. And especially, <clears throat> excuse me, with, uh, with, uh, with type hinting and so on, we find that we can usually get the same performance as we'd be able to get out of Java, out of Clojure, but it's not always clear when you've sort of got all the type hints right and everything is is uh, is working the way you think it is versus there, there's some sort of reflection going on or uh, you know numbers being boxed or, or, or this kind of stuff. So a profiler what, is definitely invaluable. What, what do you guys use for a profiler? Uh, we use your kit. Yeah, we do too. It's awesome. <laughs> I really like it. And we, in fact, we were, I was just using it the other day. It's exactly what you said. We were using it to look at a system we were building, um, and something was using a lot of CPU. We pointed your kit at it and said, oh, look, that thing that we were handing in over here and calling randenth on is a seek and not a vector. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, randenth is not efficient for seeks. We changed one line of code, and off we went. So, yeah, that sounds like it's similar to what you guys have seen. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so there, there's that whole side of, I guess, getting the, the low-level sort of numerical stuff um, right. And we've, 
we've also built some libraries to help us with this. So we have, we've talked a little bit about our flop library, which um, I think we uh, hope to release uh, relatively soon, which uh, sort of wraps up uh, Java arrays and lets you write code that looks um, sort of a lot like normal closure sequence code, but it's actually doing, uh, you know, uh, raw primitive math over over arrays, and and so that can speed things up by by orders of magnitude doing that, and and sort of allows you to just get the the um, the tricky part of getting the type hints right, uh, do that in just one place, and then you know sort of write more natural code other places. So definitely, you know, taking these these performance bottlenecks and trying to you know, you want to isolate the ugly code and, and uh, uh, you know, sort of try to not think about that stuff as much as you can. Right. So that's, well, I want to come back to that because I haven't actually mm -hmm. looked at that very much, but let's, um, I, I kind of want to keep on the production road because, I mean, mm -hmm. um, one of the things that's interesting to, to me is I, I have no idea, like, how you guys are deployed. I mean, are you running in the cloud, what do you use for a container? Like, what's the what's the infrastructure story for you for closure? Mm -hmm. um, sure. So, um, yeah, again, our our backend stack is is all JVM, basically all pure closure. Um, we um, our uh, our API machines and other servers are are currently using uh, we're currently using Ring uh, actually for um, uh, for for web serving uh, so uh, and and sorry we're entirely hosted on Amazon so mm -hmm. we have our own little uh, deployment um, deployment thing which basically just you know pushes out uh, pushes out jars and um, and launches them pretty you know pretty simple. Do you use Beanstalk or are you using just straight EC two? Uh, no, we're using straight EC2, so we've wrapped their, the parts of their API that we use. And, um, yeah, we use, we sort of are trying to, you know, try to stay away from as much of the sort of magic stuff that Amazon gives you, because, you know, if at some point we have to, we have to move or we want to, um, you know, have uh, backup, uh, backups on other, uh, you know, other providers or, or something like that, we don't want to get sort of too tied into stuff. We do use... Uh, we use uh, S3 uh, and you know uh, extensively and and DynamoDB a little bit and and but uh, mostly try to stay sort of as close to the metal as we can. Sure. So so then you're deploying. You said you're running Ring. Is that are you serving it behind Jetty or something else or? Uh yeah, Ring Jetty. Okay. And then do you front that with Nginx? Uh no. Um. So we we have uh, we use ELB uh for for load balancing. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess uh, so. We've actually only recently moved our um, our actual uh, sort of web server over to over to Closure. Um, the um, the API server has been in Closure the whole time, but basically our 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 clients are architected so that um, you know they basically just talk to the the uh, you know all, they they talk to the API which serves up JSON and and they do all client side templating and so on. So um, you know it we actually don't have we basically have a bunch of, of static files that that end up getting cached in CloudFront and then we have the API server which serves up JSON. Sure, that's where all your your real quote unquote load is. Then I suppose. Uh, yeah, and it's it's nice because the the actual amount of data that's going through there is is pretty small. I mean, we will you know think for 
a couple hundred milliseconds in order to serve up uh, 5K of compressed JSON. So, mm. so you guys are using uh, JSON, but in an application where you have closure in the back end and at least some closure script in the front end, um, you know, at least we've uh, made use on some projects uh, of Eden. Are you? Is that something you, like that predates you, or is there a reason you weren't using that? Or um, yeah, well, so definitely uh, Eden wasn't around when we uh, we started doing this stuff. Um, we also, uh, you know, we we don't just have the web app; we also have a an iPhone client. And I think maybe I just saw that there was uh, someone's put together an Eden parser for uh, for uh, for iOS, but you know that's not. Uh, if you know if it ain't broke, uh, don't fix it. Sure. And you know it's not something we're particularly interested in in writing if there weren't any um, you know big wins in it for us. Right. Uh, what uh, what benefit do you see using using Eden over over JSON? Well, so so obviously they're they're isomorphic in a sense, right? Like anything mm-hmm. you can express in um, in in Eden, you can express in JSON and vice versa. Although depending on what data you're transmitting, um, you know you can wind up having to resort to hacks like. Uh, dates are strings, whereas Eden has a, you know, the, with the tag literals, you have support for expressing dates with the semantic of a date at the transmission level. So mm-hmm. I, I think that's um, that's kind of a big deal. And also um, namespacing in Eden, right, mm-hmm. which, which you don't have in JSON. Um, and, you know, if you, if you have straightforward JSON and not a lot of nesting and you don't want to uh, support, you don't, you don't have a need for extensibility or composability, the namespacing as an issue kind of goes away. But in regimes where you do have those requirements, then those are all, in my opinion, substantial advantages of um, Eden over over JSON. Mm-hmm. Cool, that makes sense. Yeah, we'll have to uh, have to um, take another look, especially, you know, we're, we're slowly rolling out ClojureScript and parts of our, parts of the current um, uh, production web app are in ClojureScript, but I think it's a relatively small portion now, but we're, uh, we're doing more or less, I think, a, a rewrite of of uh, the the web client in in uh, pure closure script. So when that happens, then um, uh, definitely sounds like it makes sense to to uh, reevaluate. Well, I think I mean maybe yeah, absolutely. I mean I could certainly mm-hmm. see that things like having an iOS client could could certainly uh, you know depending on the maturity of whether there's an Eden parser available over there, that could definitely be a strong consideration because you know how it is right like you build software and you make a choice and then you decide to change your mind and then oftentimes that means that you're actually supporting both choices mm-hmm. you know, ostensibly for a little while but in reality forever so yeah i could totally i didn't mean to call it i didn't mean to say mm-hmm. what are you guys thinking you know that <laughs> totally makes sense that you would choose json i was just curious no not at all uh yeah and especially that's true with uh with the uh, the ios app because you know the web app is great because if we make a change we uh you know when we push it up we can force everyone's browser to refresh and and one minute later we uh we don't need the <laughs> the old code anymore but right. uh you can't can't quite do that with the uh iphone installs right yeah that's really cool um that's great, man. So that's really interesting. You guys are on on AWS. We've been doing a lot of AWS work ourselves. How do you how do you find it? Like, what's your? I, I mean, for us, it's been it's been a a big win. Like having that on demand, you know, almost everything is is really great. What has your experience been with AWS in particular with you know your app? Uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been really good. I think we we've had you know a few little problems here and there where um, you know they've 
sort of some funny business has happened, but uh, on the whole, it's been really stable and, uh, you know, yeah, it's great to be able to provision machines on demand and, um, you know, S3 is, is really great for, uh, for, you know, storing data. We use it extensively to uh, decouple our services. So, uh, and, you know, to sort of try to make things as stateless as possible. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, we sort of steer, steer clear of, again, some of the, the, fancier features and and uh, we've sort of um, uh, yeah ju just sort of try to try to keep things as simple as possible but on that simple subset it's been it's been really great so when you say you use s3 to decouple your services I'm I, there's a couple things I think that could mean one of them and I, I doubt this is the case is that you're using s3 as as a data store I know you mentioned you use Dynamo a little bit um, where does the persistent state for this application go uh, yeah, so most of, um, I guess we, we use various data stores. So we have uh, we have some stuff on local disk. We use S3. I think I lost you, I think I lost you there. Let's see if Jason comes back in a second here. Mm, not hearing him right now. Hey. Oh. Hey, sorry about that. No, that's all right. It's Skype. It happens. I think everybody understands that. And I uh, hopefully I'll be able to uh, to clean that up. So I think you were saying um, that you use S3, and uh, we were talking about how you store data in the application. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we largely use uh, custom in-memory data structures that, that uh, basically snapshot themselves in, in chunks to S3. Um, and this is sort of really nice and, and simple because, you know, a machine can come up and uh, with basically no local state and slurp in, you know, however many gigabytes of, of data from S3 in a minute to fill up its, its memory and then restart wherever it left off. Um, so when we can get away with that, which is, uh, which is a lot of the time, we, uh, we actually uh, do that. And, um, yeah, it's sort of... You know, pushes the uh, the burden of uh, I guess you know maintaining this uh, availability and so on to Amazon, which seems to do a, a pretty damn good job of that with S3. Yeah, particularly I think I don't I, I want to say I have a recollection of somebody saying S3 has never been down, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we've occasionally it'll uh, you know it'll it'll time out on us a little bit more than usual or something, but yeah, we've never had a case where it's been, it's been totally down. I've, I've heard ho some horror stories about other, uh, about, um, uh, what's it called? The, um, EBS and, mm. and so on. Uh, so we more or less steer clear of that, but, um, but yeah, S3 has been great. Cool. 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 So um, one of the things that's really interesting about your company is that you have been doing, you've been making a very a public and I think um, very interesting effort to open source um, some substantial pieces of what you've developed in the course of building Prismatic. Um, the one that's kind of getting a lot of attention right now at this moment is Graph. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, sure. Um, so... Uh, yeah, we're really excited about about open source and sharing, um, you know, yeah, sharing most of the the sort of low level uh, plumbing code that that uh, makes us run. Um, and yeah, Graph in particular is it's um, 
it's what we call a, a fine-grained composable abstraction for for actually composing functions in itself. So, uh, you know, when you have a well-designed functional program, you often, you know, you end up with a, a lot of nice pure functions for doing all the kinds of things that you want to do. And often these can sort of compose together nicely and in pairs and triples and so on until you're left with a, a single high-level function to call. But sometimes things are not that simple. So you may have uh, a data processing pipeline with tens of inter in interdependent steps or uh, we have you know, a production service with maybe 100 components that sort of depend on each other in complex ways. And this is the, the sort of case where that graph is made for. So without it, we would end up with these huge monolithic functions that would express this composition logic. And there's sort of a lot of complexity overhead in writing this down, you know, concerning yourself with when each step is, is computed, how the values are sort of cached and piped between steps, uh, how you monitor the steps, uh, how you test the thing. Um, and so graph is, is basically just a, de a declarative way to express composition logic uh, by just saying what the components are and how they should be connected. So the, here, here I, I, I'm, I haven't really played with graph, but I've, you know, mm -hmm. I saw you guys present on it um, at, I don't remember, it might've been strange loop anyway. Um, yeah, it was strange loop. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and you know, I, I saw when you open source it recently, I took a look again. I, I wonder if it's fair to summarize it the following way. So when I write closure, I've got a, a you know, a namespace, a bunch of functions in there. You mm -hmm. know, oftentimes you read it from the bottom of the file up and mm -hmm. it looks something like at the bottom of the file is a function a and a calls B and C. And then C calls D and E and B calls F and G. And you know what I mean? Like there's this sort of tree where this, you kind of keep going down a level. And mm -hmm. I, when I do that, I'm always torn between doing that and just making A call all the pieces and putting them together. Because you can usually rip it up and put it together like nine different ways, mm -hmm. right? And so it sounds to me like maybe maybe naive, but one way to look at graph is that it gets you out of the business of deciding how to structure your code by expressing it as, you know, functions calling functions, calling functions, calling functions. You can just write the leaves and then all the interleaving happens in kind of a declarative way in one place. Uh, so that's, that's certainly one way um, in which you could, you could use it. Um, I think we, you know, we're we're usually sort of as as Spartan as as we can be when we code. So we're you know try to sort of uh, you know only bring in extra firepower when when we need it. So most of the the cases where we actually use graph uh, in our code are, are places where it's not just that it would it might be nice to express the composition logic in this way, but that when you if you try to do it, it it just ends up. Uh, if you try to do it without graph, basically you end up with a big mess. Gotcha. Um, uh, that, that said, it's you know it, it's definitely interesting to sort of explore um, uh, sort of using uh, using the idea in more places, and and uh, uh, the goal is certainly to make it as as lightweight and <clears throat> uh, as possible, so that you know it's not any it shouldn't feel any heavier to write a graph than to just write a function. And 
Yeah, certainly, like in the in the case that you say, the, the advantage there of using a graph would be, uh, for instance, if we actually wanted to monitor all these functions, B, C, D, and E, and at runtime maybe, and see how long they're taking and so on, we, uh, you know, we might express it as a graph, and that way we can just um, just call a higher order function on the graph to monitor, say, the execution time of all these things and, and push it to our dashboard. Gotcha. Well, that's really cool, actually. So you can, so the graph really is a data, I think it really is reified as a data structure that you can do operations on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, so this, the whole idea of declarative programming obviously isn't new, but I think the, the thing that we've really tried hard with in graph is to make it really simple and really close to the language. So, you know, all there are in graph is there are closure maps and keywords and keyword functions. So that's the one sort of new entity that we, we had to introduce to make it work. Uh, but a keyword function is basically just a function that takes maps with keywords and returns uh, stuff, potentially other maps with keywords. So, uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, the, the goal is definitely to make it, make it sort of really simple. And, and the nice thing about that is that you can... You already have all the tools for manipulating graph in Clojure. You know, you already have a SOC for adding nodes or or modifying existing nodes and so on. Right. Even a printer. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I mean, this is I think this is really cool, and I think it's going to one of these things that um, is going to take the community a while to absorb. Even though, as I said, you guys were talking about this way back in at least September. Um, I, I know that at the client I'm at right now. You know, you guys announced, and the, the the CTO there sent around a link, and then sent around a follow-up email later saying, "You know, the more I think about this, the more I think this might be really, really important for us." And there's been some agreement with that, so I think uh, I think has the potential to really help out a bunch of people if they can, you know, kind of absorb the the model, which it isn't. I mean, like I watched Rich's reducers talk three times, and I'm like. I'm starting to understand it, but but graph, it seems like it's it's just much more um, for me at least accessible. Like it doesn't seem like a terribly terribly. It might be subtle in its implications, I think, but but in terms of understanding like the syntax and how you would use it, it's not. It doesn't it doesn't seem like that big of a barrier to climb over. Yeah, I think the the tricky part is that it's the basic idea is simple and it's easy to show a simple example, but then. The hard part, I guess, is conveying uh, what a real example looks like or, or maybe helping people recognize, oh, I have this situation in my code where, where you know, I have this function and it's really ugly and if I, if I made it into a graph, it would be, would be clear. And I think, um, you know, our goal is definitely to open source. Uh, so we, we, uh, we actually build our production services out of graphs and so we want to release all the infrastructure that we do uh, do for this, and then we can actually, you know, show some some real examples of you know here's a little mini service that's that's built with graph and and sort of this is how it works a little bit more in the large, and I think that that will hopefully help people um, understand, I guess where we're sort of trying to to go with this that uh, you know beyond like uh, little toy problems. Sure, yeah, it's gonna be it's really exciting. So um, you mentioned at least one other open source library. Uh, whose name I'm blanking on. It sounded like Flow. Was it Flow? Uh, flop. Flop. That's what it was. Right, right, right. That was the uh, the uh, native arrays stuff, which is really cool. Um, and you said that one is is coming. Do you guys have any kind of a 
like what else? What else? I mean, this is awesome. So we're I think we're all very excited to see what else you can come up with. And, and flop certainly sounds totally awesome for uh, those times when you need it, which you know, depending on what you're doing, is maybe pretty often. Um, mm-hmm. what, what what else you guys got planned? Uh, yeah. So um, I think you know more or less we're we're planning on you know we're obviously not going to release sort of our our uh, the the secret sauce of how we we generate uh, news feeds. But other than that, I think um, you know most stuff is is pretty much fair game, and we just have to figure out how to prioritize. So we have. Uh, we have a library for storage, which uh, um, sort of has a nice key value abstraction over uh, all sorts of things. So over S3 and BDB and uh, Dynamo and file systems. Uh, we have um, a library that wraps Ring and, and makes it easier to write, uh, say, versioned APIs and uh, actually builds on top of Graph a little bit. Uh, we have... Again, the uh, the service infrastructure stuff, uh, which sort of ties together a lot of these these components. Um, there's uh, let's see, looking just looking at our, uh, our directory here. <laughs> My head's already see. exploding, but I want to hear more. Go ahead. Um, yeah, uh, optimization. So I think well, that's I guess that's actually part of Flop. We have a, a state of the art optimizer that you can use to implement uh, machine learning mm-hmm. algorithms. That's uh, that's super fast. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, more or less we're, as long as it's not something where we feel like we're, we're really, uh, sort of giving away our hand by releasing it, I think we're, uh, open to basically, you know, open sourcing everything else. And it's just a matter of prioritizing and finding the time to do it. Sure. 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 Like you said, you guys have, uh, you're able because you're using closure to run with a fairly small engineering staff. So I imagine that, that, uh, doesn't make it easier to, uh, you know, do, there's work. I mean, there's work involved in open sourcing anything. Um, you know, if nothing else, you've got to go over it and, and make sure that it's cleanly broken off from, from the rest of your application, which is non, you know, can be non-trivial. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, it was a fair bit of work to get, uh, get plumbing and, and graph out there. Um, I mean, on, on the other hand, I guess a lot of that work is work that, you know, we, um, you know, we're, uh, to keep our, our code base accessible and clean, we're always relentlessly refactoring things and cleaning it up. Uh, so this basically just forced us to actually, you know, direct our, our energy to this one part and actually make it really nice and, and clean and make sure the API is sane and it's tested. So, you know, a lot of that is uh, work is, you know, stuff that we would have done eventually anyway. It's just sort of, uh, you know, pushed it, pushed it up front. Yeah, shame is a great motivator. so that actually brings uh, you know you said you're always relentlessly refactoring and um, uh, later today I'm actually uh, interviewing um, Stuart Sierra one of our developers on Mm -hmm. uh, a aspect of our development workflow that he has had a big hand in developing Um, but when I was getting ready for that interview I thought wow I should ask these guys like what is their what, what does your development workflow look like I mean like you know are Using, I mean, just simple things like are you using Line again, Emacs, you know, how do you, if you go to create a new uh, uh, project, a new component, like there's a bunch of stuff that you always do. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about like, how you guys write Clojure, what what your uh, tooling and approach and maybe some things that people wouldn't expect. Um, sure. Yeah. So we use, uh, we use Line again and um, we, uh, we, we actually have our, our codes broken up into um, um, 30 or 40 maybe separate projects. Uh, 
which all depend on each other. Um, and we have a, uh, a Linegan plugin that we wrote that allows us to uh, basically still use source level dependencies. So we can still sort of uh, treat this in a sense when we're developing as one large project. Um, uh, it's all in one Git repo, but it, it sort of uh, forces us to uh, be a little more disciplined about uh, you know about what we're writing and think about where this code belongs and does it belong here or um, uh, so on. Um, <clears throat> making uh, well, let's see, yeah, making new services. I wish I had a, a nicer story, but uh, the the shameful truth is right now I I usually do a CP dash R and, and modify. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, um, so let's see. For, for, for instance, I would like to, I, I wonder, you know, uh, you're a developer, you're working on Prismatic. Prismatic is, uh, uh, you know, a complex system, right? I mean, you, you guys do a lot of interesting stuff, obviously. And does it, so like, if you're making a change, are you constantly restarting the, the REPL or do you have some some magic that you use to, to get up and running or do you typically just work on the functional side and the, the service stands up elsewhere? Like how does that go? Uh, I see. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, obviously try to, to write things in terms of, uh, you know, these, these, uh, sort of smaller abstractions. And so each abstraction can be sort of written and, and tested, um, independently. And we, uh, you know, as much as possible, may try to be able to actually run stuff, uh, you know, run a, a real test environment locally. Um, but, you know, one of the, the great things about, uh, yeah, about working in a Lisp is that, you know, we don't uh, really have to restart very often. I mean, we can just uh, just connect to to the local service and, uh, you know, and, and uh, eval and emacs and, and see the change and, and uh, uh, <clears throat> just uh, develop interactively. So, are you using uh, Closure Tools namespace? Closure Tool. Uh, what a what is that? Oh, it's a, it's that that's the that's one of the things we've been talking about Stuart about. It's mm -hmm. um it's a contrib library he wrote for managing reloading of namespaces and namespace dependencies. Because the the problem that that you can run into, maybe you guys have found a way around oh, this, yeah. right? Is for example, uh, I re I take a function and I rename it, and I evaluate the new function. But guess what? I've still got the old one, right? So e eval alone used naively, and I don't know what you guys do. Is you know you still have a few residual problems. So he developed that as a way to address that. Is that you guys just sort of know closure well enough that you just know what's happening when that happens, or you have some other approach? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, we we don't have any uh, any um, silver bullets for that. We uh, you know when occasionally you get slimed as we as we call it, and uh, you you know you you just restart and um, you know. Uh, but that definitely sounds sounds useful, especially when when dealing with I guess uh, with protocols and and uh, records and def types and so on. That uh, that can be a real headache because yeah. you know you recompile the protocol and now everything upstream is is now uh, uh, no longer works basically. Yep. Yep. Been there, done that, got the scars. Yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Wow. So you guys are doing a lot of interesting. I mean, that list of open source stuff that's uh, either out or coming just blew my mind. That's really fantastic. Um, 
what else, man? What else should I be asking you about that I haven't we haven't talked about yet? What do you what do you guys got up your sleeves, or what should I what should we talk about? Uh, let's see. So, um, I mean, one thing that we're we're interested in exploring, and maybe uh, you have ideas on this uh, too, is um, so you know, closure is really the, the flexibility that it gives you is really great, and I think once you sort of learn how to, to navigate in this space, you can come up with some really great abstractions, but I think it also gives you, there's sort of a lot of room to, um, you know, sort of, uh, write really unstructured and, and, uh, weird code as well. So we, we want to, uh, basically develop a, a style guide for, you know, new hires coming in to sort of help, you know, teach, uh, some of the things that we've, uh, you know, the lessons that we've learned, maybe the the hard way along the way. So, um, I think that's an an interesting thing which I haven't seen that much discussion about in the community. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't maybe maybe we've just uh, um, sort of missed the missed the boat. But um, that's definitely something that we're we're interested in now and trying to sort of collect examples and and um, yeah, that uh, sounds awesome. I, I would love to read it. I mean, you know, I, the, the, it's the kind of, it's kind of this, it's kind of, so, I mean, we are in this position um, that, you know, most of our work is consulting work. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that means that there are a lot of things that we're doing that we can't talk about. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we kind of, you know, for good reasons, but, you know, it's not always really possible for us to, to say, oh, I did this really cool thing over here. Let me just, you know, throw it on the internet, right? So uh, I, I, for one, would love to see that because I think there's I, I happen to know there's a lot of closure going on that that people aren't talking about. So the more that companies like Prismatic who are very open about um, closure can share their experiences, I think that's fantastic because it really helps um, projects that are that are on that 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 secret island, right, that they can't necessarily reach out uh, with what they have to to engage on on that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be great. Yeah. Is that I uh, do uh at relevance do you have something like this internally that you you've worked on then that you just uh you can't share publicly or is it something you'd be interested in collaborating on oh we uh, de- so we don't we don't have anything like that internally i mean i, I think you know we're a really close knit community and um you know uh we we get to move around projects from time to time so and also we have fridays where we can cross pollinate a lot just by virtue of coming together and working on things with different combinations of people that aren't working together Monday through Thursday. Mm-hmm. So I, I think to, to some degree we achieve that through um, you just through, you know, other policies, but I, but I, I also think it's a great idea. And as far as the question of whether we'd be willing to collaborate, uh, although I don't speak for the company, I'll go ahead and speak for the company and say, hell yeah. Right. I mean, that, <laughs> that's so valuable that we would absolutely love to be um, of any kind of assistance we could with that. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's largely how it's been for us. We do uh, we do a fair bit of, of pair programming and code review. And so we sort of, uh, you know, I think over the past year and a half kind of converged on a style that seems to, to work well, at least at, at our scale. Um, that's sort of another really interesting question that, that I have is what does what does a closure project look like uh, with, you know, as, as you grow? So I know you know, I had my own project in grad school that I worked on for a couple of years and had 20,000 lines of code. And now there are, you know, three or four of us writing closure and, you know, our, 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 you know, you know, 
getting significantly bigger than that. What is what does a code base look like with with twenty developers or a hundred developers and and um, you know, what so what kind of things do you need to to do to to make it scale? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I don't I, I'm not aware of and I would doubt the existence of hundred developer closure projects. Um, <laughs> but I am working on a twenty developer roughly closure project right now. Um, and uh, there are some challenges there. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's funny, right? We have, we all have this relationship with closure where it's like, you know, it's clearly um, a grown up language, right? It has all the affordances that you would expect to build real systems solving hard problems like what you guys are doing. Um, but at the same time, it's a really young language. I mean, it's, it's five years old, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's crazy. It's, it's like, it's like a 10 year old with a PhD. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, so I think there's a very real sense in which there simply has not been time, period, to answer um, through weight of experience a lot of the questions about, you know, because some of those questions like how do you deal with, with growth, you, deal, you, you get those answers by, by doing it four or five times. Oh, yeah, we tried that. It worked once. It didn't work in other times. And I, I haven't, nor do I think anyone has, is building their fourth system with 20 closure developers, right? Yeah. Um, so I just don't think those answers exist right now, except in as much as they uh, embrace um, the things that have nothing to do with closure, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, what are the challenges? The challenges are what you'd expect, right? You've got 20 people and, you know, I think one of the great things is that you can get a lot done and so with, with a small number of people. And so uh, you've got, you know, maybe 10 teams of two people. Um, and you know, there's, there's a certain overhead there in the sense that you have to take time out of your day to walk over to at least three or four of the other teams and say, Hey, I was thinking about doing this this way. Do you have anything similar? Are you solving the same problem right now? Um, and there's things that we've used. I mean, the one, one great, really simple technique, nothing to do with closure that we make use of a lot is, um, GitHub pull requests, which, mm -hmm. uh, if you're on GitHub, I think most people, a lot of people don't know you can have a pull request within the same repo. So I can be working on branch foo in you know, some repo and send a pull request back to the same repo, a different branch. Hmm. It's kind of a nice, it's not perfect by any stretch, but it is a way to have a discussion about code you know, that would happen normally between projects, but, but within the project. And so you know, I'll, I'll work on something on my own and you know, if I haven't paired on it, typically I'll work in a branch and I'll send a pull request out to somebody just within that repo. It's a private repo, but they can still comment on it and reject it or merge it and delete the branch. So that's a that's a nice kind of um, uh, little uh, tool that we use to address some of that. But but yeah, I don't I don't have any sage advice to give you on on my vast experience with um, with large numbers of. Uh, uh, of people working on, on closure. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm gaining some right now, but I, I'm not far enough along yet to really offer like a solid perspective there. Other than to say that... Cool. Um, well, the the pull request is a, a good tip. We've actually uh, um, sort of been wondering a good way to do sort of lightweight uh, code review, and that sounds like a, a great tool for that. Yeah, it's worth a try. I mean, you know, like I say, it's not... It's not... Hey, uh, we got you back. All right. Yeah. I was just saying uh, it's definitely... Uh, the pull requests are... Uh, are definitely worth a try. So uh, you may may find it doesn't work for you, but I it's it's at least worth the experiment. Cool. Yeah, we'll definitely give it a shot. Cool. Wow, man. Uh, what else? Anything else? 
Uh, let's see. Um, well, uh, how much uh, how much time do we have here? Well, unfortunately, I do have to go and and talk to a customer. Um, it's only unfortunate in that I would love to keep speaking to. You. I do have to go in a couple minutes, but if you have a couple more, if you have something you want to talk about for a couple more minutes, I'd be happy to do that. Um. Well, let's see. I, I don't uh, can't think of anything that's uh, sort of uh, um, you know uh, a couple minutes worth rather than uh, opening up a new new can of worms here. Well, uh, that's all right. Um, that's okay because uh, we will definitely have to have you back on. Uh, sounds like you guys have got a lot of things in the works. So I I, I have a feeling there's uh, no shortage of other things that we could talk about if we uh, reconnect in a few months. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'd love that. I also realized just now that uh, there's another first on the show, <laughs> which is that I forgot to ask you about the music on the way in. Oh. Right? So we always have the intro music, and I almost always ask the guests what they'd like to hear. So let's take care of that bit of business right now. What what should, what should was I playing on the way in when, when I didn't mention it? Uh, I was thinking of uh, Fight Test by the Flaming Lips. All right. Awesome. That is great, and we'll get to the other half of that in just a second. But before we do that, I have to thank you again very much for taking time out of your day to come on and uh, and talk to us. It's really cool. I would love to have you back on um, and and hear more about all the exciting things you're doing. And uh, you know, maybe uh, as you get a chance to think about some of these issues of you know how how teams can work with um, uh, can can work with closure as the as the team size scales up, that'd be really cool. Also, be fun to talk again. Um, when you when we get the uh, the style guide together and and maybe go over that a little bit and talk to people about you know what's in there and 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 what you've recommended and why why we think that's a good idea so any of those things I think would be a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Cool. Well, uh, so uh, yeah, it's been great. So uh, before we before we go, then I ask the other question in close proximity, closer proximity than normal. Uh, what uh, what music are we playing on the way out here? Ah, I didn't. Uh, let's see. I didn't. Uh, didn't realize I had the uh, the way out music. Yeah, too. we're gonna give you a double whammy. Okay. Um, hmm. I only picked one here. Maybe. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, we'll say "Get Free" by uh, Major Laser. All right. Awesome. That's coming up in the background right now. So, uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Jason. It was really fun. I uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I look forward to chatting again soon. Absolutely. And I, I, will we see you at Closure West? Um, I unfortunately don't think we're, we're going uh, to make it up there this year. Okay, but, well, I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll catch you at Strange Loop or at the Conj or, or, or somewhere sooner or later. Uh, yeah, Jenny, um, Jenny Finkel, uh, uh, our other back-end engineer, is actually giving a keynote at Strange Loop, so she'll definitely be there too. Fantastic. I'll be sure to catch that. All right, well, I will thank you again, and I will thank all of our listeners for, for tuning in once again, downloading this. Really appreciate, uh, really appreciate you doing that. And uh, this has been Think Relevance, the podcast.